to you in peace from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our text is taken from this gospel lesson. I'll read just those fine, final words of the text. Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Here ends our text. I ask you to come with me to that last hymn we just sang, number 587, and I'd like to pray, have us all pray, the second stanza. If that's okay, I'll give you time to grab your hymnals, which you've put away. Hymn number 587. Stanza 2, beauty of a hymn is that it is also a prayer. Let's pray this together. Increase my faith, dear Savior, for Satan seeks by night and day to rob me of this treasure and take my hope of bliss away. But, Lord, with you beside me, I shall be undismayed. And led by your good spirit, I shall be unafraid. Abide with me, O Savior, a firmer faith bestow. Then I shall bid defiance to every evil foe. Amen. This text from, well, in fact, the entire gospel of Mark is a resounding statement by the author inspired by the Holy Spirit that Satan and all his power has been destroyed. It must have been in those 40 days a kind of a surreal thing for the disciples. Jesus appearing and then disappearing. Jesus allowing them to touch him physically. Jesus eating with them. And yet at the same time, knowing that there was a, a dimension that had somehow been passed where he now was moving into the realm of eternity and somehow eternity was also present. Surreal that had become the real. He had been raised from the dead. And we know and understand by this that in that resurrection, in the crucifixion and the resurrection, that the devil who had brought this travesty upon mankind in the fall into sin, that this had been now undone, that Christ had conquered the power of the devil. And as a result, it took a long time for it to sink in for the disciples as to what exactly that meant. They had to go back and think about all the things that he had taught them. And this case, of course, was one of them. He was reminding them about something he had done. He had taken five loaves of bread and fed 5,000 people. He had taken seven loaves of bread, fed 4,000 people. How many basketfuls? And these were not just little tiny basketfuls. There were baskets that were so big a man could, be, could fit into them. How many did you take up afterwards? 
And they were being reminded that something had happened, some miracle had happened, something, some penetration of the devil's domain had taken place by Jesus, a victory that was then finally brought to its conclusion upon his resurrection from the dead. The last enemy of all, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, last enemy to be destroyed is death. So right now, even though we have to enter into death, even though there is this body that is going to come to its conclusion, even though we are still going to get sick and we're going to die, every one of us, yet that enemy that has been destroyed is destroyed once and for all. And we are going to receive from our Lord a total and complete victory over everything that happened when mankind fell into sin. In order to understand, I guess you might say, a little bit about the devil's power and its work, his work, we have to sometimes look at what it is that came into the world through him. As a result of Adam's fall, what came into the world through this fall of Adam and Eve into sin. To begin with, this thing that happened, happened to the whole world. And that's why it is that we see the effects of Satan and we see the effects of evil in this creation of ours so much, so aboundingly. In Mark chapter 7, we see what Jesus described as the effect of sin in defiling. That is to say that when mankind fell into sin, Everything that human beings touched, a symbol of even everything that we did, every work that we had, all of our deeds, our thoughts, our actions, everything around us, all became as though things were being dropped in the dirt off of the supper table and getting dirty and therefore unusable. Everything that we do as human beings is defiled by our own sinful natures. And so what God gave to those people of the Old Testament were commands about washing, about cleansing, that were supposed to be symbols of something far greater, that when the Word of God came, that there would be a washing and a cleansing of us from our own sins. This defilement is what came upon all humanity. There's not a single human being, Paul quoted from the Old Testament, that does good and does not sin. Everything is corrupt. Everything we touch is corrupt. The second thing that Mark seems to be pointing out to us is that because of the fall, because of this corruption, then man has to distort the word of God. If you can't fulfill the commandment, you've got to come up with a way to be able to distort the commandment to make it look like you're fulfilling the commandment. Mark also tells us that as a result of this fall into sin, there was this incredible fracture that took place in mankind. Adam and Eve, the first fracture, but thereafter, immediately, mankind rose up in warfare and bloodshed, killing one another. And this separation was not just between sinners, that is to say that, like the Tower of Babel, all of humanity was fractured and spread apart, but it's also 
a separation that had to take place between those who were God's people and those who were not, we begin to get a kind of a foretaste of what was yet to come when Jesus meets the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7. This woman comes and begs for her daughter to be healed. And Jesus turns to her and he says, it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. And she, in humility and in faith, says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. That somehow in him, maybe there was a light that there would be this change taking place where those who were separated from one another would now be brought back together once again. This fall of mankind into sin brought what so many of us see all around us today. It just seems as though there's so much of it. It brought sickness into the world. It brought death into the world. As we look around ourselves and we see that there are so many bodies as well as souls that are sick, we find ourselves realizing that this too was the effect of the fall. This is the devil's handiwork. And last but certainly not least, the result of that fall for which God turned to woman and he said that in childbearing she would have great pain and that to the man that he would eat his bread by the sweat of his brow that now all of a sudden creation itself was going to resist and fight against man. If any of you have ever planted a garden, you find out that the weeds are growing faster than you can pull them out. You realize that in creation, everything is struggling and fighting against us and that we must fight against it in order to be able to just survive. These are the effects of the fall into sin and the work and the handiwork of the devil. Now the question is not just what happened to that creation, but what is it that has happened to me? What is it that has happened to you? Well, what has happened to me and what has happened to you is that we also were born defiled by nature, children of wrath, by nature, unable to touch anything to do anything and we would defile it so that it would not be acceptable to God. So what did Jesus do? The very beginning of his ministry, yes? He walked into the waters of the Jordan River, and there he was baptized. Necessary, he said, to fulfill all righteousness, but his baptism became our baptism and in his baptism and in his life, death, suffering, resurrection, everything that Jesus did for us in his shedding of his blood. Now those waters of Christian baptism have given us the privilege of being washed so that our works, our deeds now can become acceptable to God. That's why Jesus came into the world to wash us and to cleanse us and all that Old Testament stuff about washing and t cleansing of vessels and everything else, that all pointed to that day that would come when Jesus would give to us a baptism where we would be washed and our consciences would be cleansed from the guilt of our own sins. 
We also understand, too, that we, too, warp the Word of God, don't we? That we continue to make excuses for the things that are called sins. It's not just the fourth commandment, but the fifth and the sixth and the seventh and the eighth and the ninth and the tenth, but especially today in our modern-day era, the first and the second and the third. We don't really need to worry too much about what God says, about what we do, about the things that we have failed to do. And we find ourselves wondering why in the world do we even need to do these commandments whatsoever. But what did Jesus do? He came into this world to give us a motivation for his works and deeds that was not based upon what we could do by the law, but rather what it is that he would do for us. That everything that he did was grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. When those words are spoken, those gospel words are spoken that tell us that God has put away our sins, that he has been reconciled to us, Jesus tells us that as we embrace those words, he says, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He came into this world because of the fact that we, by our relationship with him, could never embrace him based upon our own works and deeds, but rather we could only embrace him because of his grace and his mercy. What has happened as a result of this fall? Well, it's ruined my relationship with all my neighbors, and it will continue to do so as long as it is me having to live that so-called perfect life and as long as it depends upon my neighbor to recognize it. But my neighbor is angry with me. My neighbor is always cautious and guarding because I am a sinful person. But Christ came into this world in order that he might bring about peace between us. So that whatever division, whatever separation, whatever crimes or sins we have committed against each other, he binds us to the fact that he forgives us far more. And out of his infinite love for us and forgiving us, he gives us an incredible power to be able to also forgive those who have sinned against us. And he is the one who has now made peace between us and God, but also it is a peace that we should and must have with one another. When sin came into this world, it infected your bodies and it infected my bodies with something called death. That is to say, every single one of us will, by virtue of the curse of the law, we will go into the grave and our bodies will die. This last week, I did a funeral for a man who was 37 years old, a man who died of cancer, two little kids. And you wonder, Lord, why in the world is this here? Why did this happen? And the only answer is this that when that final enemy of death comes, it is not going to have power 
over us. That we, like he, are going to be raised from the dead. And that his open tomb also means our open tomb. That's why he came into this world. And he came into this world because of the fact that we have a creation that would fight so hard against us that we have to work seven days out of the week in order to be able to try and stay ahead just to put food in our mouths. Maybe not in this prosperous world of ours today do we see it quite that way. But the world will, without work, without energy, without striving, will starve. And what we have from our Lord now in this text is a mystery that somehow where Christ is to be found, that's where five loaves of bread can feed 5,000 people. That's where it is that the little efforts and the struggles that we have in our life are always in God's hands capable of being able to make room for him, for his word, for his kingdom, and for worship. How often do we not hear from people, I just don't have time. Sunday mornings, they're so crucial. I need to sleep in. I need to be able to have time with my spouse. Otherwise, if it's not on Sunday morning, when will it be? Do you not understand? Five loaves of bread, seven loaves of bread, 5,000 people, 12 basketfuls picked up afterwards. What does that mean? It means that God is quite capable of being able to meet all of those needs, that there is an undoing of this struggle against creation, and that as we pray, give us this day our daily bread, that it is going to be there because he is now the Lord of this creation, this one who has been raised from the dead. That's why he tells his Pharisees, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. That's what he tells his disciples. Those Pharisees who thought that they could undo the effect of the fall through their own efforts and deeds. They were the ones who thought that they would cleanse themselves by their own good deeds. They were the ones who thought that by their works and traditions that they could modify and change God's word. They were the ones who believed that they could, well, that they could justify, if not even reconcile, with any man that they wanted to. They were the ones who thought that sickness was a punishment for sinners, and they were the ones who thought that they had the power to be able to overcome any of their adversaries in life. So as the disciples looked back upon the words of Jesus and his actions, what were they remembering about these words? Certainly that the struggle with creation, the devil's stronghold, was and had been by Jesus destroyed. He was the one who had broken the five loaves. He was the one who had broken the seven loaves. And now he was the one who had in this resurrection a complete and a total victory over Satan and the effects of the fall that came into this world and he was bidding his disciples to put their faith in him in all respects. All sin has now been forgiven in Christ. All sin to believe that. It meant that we could 
accept God's word at face value, even the terrifying effects of his law, and not be afraid because we had a blood that spoke for us as we faced what that law condemned. Through the gospel, now we can be reconciled with even our greatest enemies. And if not with them in our own hearts towards them, and we can live our lives in peace by putting away their sins, even as our Lord puts away our own. And it means that now we have a sure and unmoving hope in the coming resurrection to everlasting life that will liberate this creation from its bondage and that this creation is now, now even liberated from its bondage to sin and to death. How glorious those 40 days must have been. But also we must remember that they were preparation for the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost when the church was now going to have to engage the world and to do battle with Satan and all his hosts and all his effects. That the church was going to have to go out into the world and take this message of Christ and undo what it is that this fall into sin had, taken, had, had done. As Paul writes, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished through Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God in freedom and in confidence. Do you not understand? Amen.